Can I just start by saying this? Why on earth do you come on Sunday morning to sing? Can I just ask? I'm, I'm not, this is not a reprimand. This is an encouragement. Why do we sing to the Lord? It's a good question. Why, why do you sing? Because He is worthy. Anything else? Because we love Him. Anything else? Because it encourages us. Anything else? Get perspective. Perhaps because there's a sense of joy in your heart. Maybe there's not a sense of joy. I'm just asking you when you come on a Sunday, why do you come to worship? I mean, the Bible says that, and this is not my preach, I'm just trying to, I just felt I had to do this after the last couple of times I've led worship. I found it difficult. I find it distracted. I find it like we're not really coming with vision in our heart to worship the King. We kind of, we kind of waft in one after the other. And maybe it is a little bit of a cracking of the whip. But I feel like I've got to do it. Because why are we here, for heaven's sake? It is for heaven's sake, isn't it? And I want to encourage this morning, when we come to, when we come to worship, let it, let it be passionate. Let it be, I'm not saying we need to be perfect singers. I'm not saying that at all. Who's a perfect singer? I ain't a perfect singer. But I'm saying, let's come, let's come with some passion. Let's come with some sense of, God, our focus for this next hour is just going to be you. And yes, I might have been distracted on the way. And yes, I might have argued with my kids in the car. And uh, the coffee might not have been up to my liking. But God, now, I walk through these doors and my heart is yours. And for this time, this hour, I'm going to give it everything that I've got. I'm going to declare your praises in this place. There is something about unity and there is something about one-heartedness. There is something about volume when you sing. I want to say to you, and that's why I asked, is there joy in your heart? Because it is a rhetorical question. It's a pointed question. If there's not joy in your heart when you come, you're not going to sing with joy. You're going to sing with distraction. Are you with me? I love that story of Peter and, and Paul, uh, Peter and uh, Silas in the jail. And the, 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 when they're singing at midnight through the bars, there's a, there's a sense of something deep in your heart when you can do that. And so I want to encourage you, despite the kind of week that you might have had, despite the fact that the stock market is going up and down, despite the fact that you might feel a bad husband or uh, uh, inferior wife, I don't care really, in this sense, when we walk through the doors, we're here to worship the King. And I know we live a lifestyle of worship every single day of the, of the week, but surely, as a people of God, we cannot be distracted when we come through the doors. And you know what I've just felt uh, in the last while? I feel like I've shrunk back a little bit in my life because I haven't wanted to be seen to be legalistic anymore or too strong. And so I've become a wuss. I want to tell you, church, when we come together, we come with one thing in mind, that is to worship the great king. It's not to have coffee. It is not just to meet with each other. Seriously, if that's why you come, perhaps go away and ask God to do something in your heart. So when you come again, it's because I want to worship Jesus with all of my heart. And yes, we love each other. And yes, the coffee is good. And it's great to fellowship. And it's great to encourage each other. But we come on a Sunday because of one reason only. Jesus is the risen King. And that's why we come. We come to worship Him. And so now my little rebuke is over. 
I trust it's also encouraged you. But let's turn to Acts chapter 8. We're going to talk about the signs of the gospel this morning. And I've loved in my times of uh, personal study and devotion this last month, I'm looking at the book of Acts. And so uh, the last time I preached, I preached a message called the, uh, the Kind of Church That God Has Mind. And we looked at the first five chapters of the scripture in Acts, and we saw the book of the early church in the book of Acts was described as a place of incredible unity, of worship, of generosity. The people were loving each other in each other's homes. They were in the temple courts, and we looked at those things. Remember the first five chapters? And then Ananias and Sapphira kind of get in the way a little bit, and they are hypocritical, and the, kind of, the church loses its fizz at that point. And then we have an amazing thing in Acts chapter 6. They choose some, some deacons. And I wanted to say this as I was driving in the car this morning. I was just saying to Helen, isn't it amazing that in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7, Philip and Stephen, who are the deacons that are chosen for the church in Jerusalem, are incredible men of power. And, you know, we have this thing, I don't know what it is, a traditional uh, mindset that the deacons are the guys that come in and they help to stack the chairs and they hand out the hymn books. And they got to, because the scripture does say in Acts chapter 6 that we need some practical help for the ministry. And so they chose these men, and uh, there were seven of them, and they administered the affairs of the church so that the others, the, the apostles, could preach and teach. And so we still have this, this um, reticence this kind of residue in our minds that deacons are actually just people that do that kind of stuff. And yet when we read the first two examples of deacons, it's Philip and Stephen, and Stephen is martyred in the most glorious way, proclaiming Christ, and Philip is the one that just blasts open the whole of Samaria. He preaches the word, and we're going to look at it this morning, and the gospel comes, and a whole area is transformed. This is Stephen. He's not even an elder. He's not an apostle. He's just someone in the congregation who's chosen and to help stack the chairs in the Jerusalem church, in the temple courts, and then God uses him in power. Don't, I, I want to say to you, I don't care how you see yourself. Perhaps you just see yourself as a, a stacker of chairs. Or that's the only, you say, Lord, that's the gift that I have. I can serve coffee. I want to say, God can use you in the most powerful way, whoever you are, however you see yourself, when His Spirit falls upon you. And I want to encourage you this morning that the Holy Spirit is here and He wants to empower us. He wants to encourage us. He wants to refresh us. He wants to give you courage if you felt like you're on the back foot, that you've lost your sense of boomer, of your sense of verve, your sense of I'm on the front foot in my life. If you feel like you've been defending all the time, I want to say the Holy Spirit's going to come this morning and put you on the front foot. Scripture describes men and women of power as people who are on the front foot. And my friends, this nation in which we live needs front-footed Christianity. It does not need back-footed, apologetic faith. Can anyone say amen? So let's read Acts chapter 8. I'm going to read the first 12 verses, and then we're going to read the second half of the verse, I mean of the chapter. And Saul approved of his execution. This is in the context of Acts 7. Stephen has just been martyred. I would like to look at that some other time. And there arose on that day great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, about men buried Stephen. 
and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him, they saw the signs that he did. And unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And there was much joy in that city. There was a man called Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city. And he was amazed at the people, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Man, this is an incredible story of power. This is sign of the gospel here, which is absolutely amazing. The context of the chapter, Stephen had been martyred. And we read in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, it says there's so many people in the temple court. It was like the temple court had become a Christian meeting. Amazing. And then Stephen, he, uh, it says, in fact, let me read it to you. It says, the word of God continued to increase, and a great number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So there's a sense of revival is just broken out. And then Stephen, in, if you read Acts chapter 7, he boldly gets up in front of the, uh, the Pharisees and Sadduc- Sadducees, and he just speaks to them out of their history, and he lets rip at the Pharisees and the Sadducees. If you know the story, he says, you are, you are wicked leaders. <laughs> He's not really trying to win friends, Stephen. He says, you are wicked leaders. He points them back to Moses. He points them back before Moses to Abraham and says, let me just tell you about the history of our nation. And he declares to them a whole lot of stuff out of the history. And initially, he gets, he gets martyred. And this initially seems to be such a tragedy for the church. It says, as we read, he was greatly mourned. Saul starts to persecute the church in an incredible way. And yet, the suffering is turned to good. And the first thing I want to just say, that despite the persecution, the gospel is forcefully advanced. And uh, it's declared, we read in in verse 7, that those that are scattered begin to boldly proclaim the gospel to wherever they go. Now, you could ask, you could say, well, was Stephen too bold? Was he silly? Did he need to be so forceful? I want to just say, when you read that chapter, and we'll look at it in the next couple of weeks, he was simply being faithful to the word of God. He was simply being faithful. He was a faithful son in the line of Abraham. He was. The irony is that the Pharisees say, you are dishonoring our forefathers by what you preach. In fact, he was the only one honoring what the prophets have said, what the prophets did say. His life was testament to the fact of Christ and in the, in the seed of Abraham, Christ coming. He was faithful to the message that God had proclaimed through Abraham. The irony is they were killing him for being faithful, and they were the ones who were being unfaithful. And verse 4 says, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And so Philip, the deacon, he goes to this town called Gitta in Samaria, and uh, 
You know, he's been a deacon, and as soon as he arrives, it says he starts to proclaim Christ. He proclaims Christ. He proclaims Jesus. And the whole thing that we've spoken of many times, he placards Christ. He lifts up Jesus so that people can see him. And what happens? As soon as he starts proclaiming the gospel, signs and wonders follow the preaching of the word. And these amazing things start to happen. There's healing and deliverance. We see that in verse 6 and 7. It says the whole city, the whole city is affected with great joy. Verse 8. Amazing, the book of Acts, wherever there are signs and wonders, it's to draw attention to the gospel, to the preaching of Jesus. Whenever there are signs and wonders, the preachers do not draw attention to the signs and wonders. They preach Christ. They preach salvation. They preach that we need a Savior. And I want to encourage you, God is going to start moving in this body in signs and wonders as we've not seen before. And when those signs and wonders come, please let's not just testify about the signs and wonders. Let's testify about the one who gives the signs and wonders. That's the living Christ, the one who sets us free. Amen? Signs and wonders are good. I'm not saying they're not good, but they draw attention to Christ, surely, to the Savior, to Him who forgives all of our sin. And let's be those that are faithful to declare that as the signs and wonders are poured out. And then thirdly, though the gospel is spread, Secondly, the signs and wonders. The third little thing I want to say out of this chapter is that the gospel is powerful to overcome false religion. False religion. And so in Samaria, there is a religion already being practiced, and the headman of that religion is Simon the sorcerer. Okay? And uh, it says, verse 9 to 11, he had great influence over the city, and for a long time people have been saying, this man is amazing. He has, he has, he has spiritual power. I want to give you a definition of magic. Magic is that which seeks to get supernatural help without going through the cross of Christ. Without going on the knee of repentance. That's what magic is. Magic, occult power, is trying to get supernatural power by avoiding the cross. That's all it's... I mean, those that uh, are into the occult, they, 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 they promise amazing blessings, amazing kind of... You will have an amazing knowledge and power, but they don't ever preach repentance. They don't ever preach that you need a Savior. They don't ever preach Christ and the cross. All they say is you can have power. Now, you might say, well, what has this got to do with um, a modern world? Well, I want to just say to you that actually it's got a lot to do with the modern world. Have you thought what a contradictory kind of society we live in? On the one hand, people say that they are absolutely atheistic and agnostic. So we believe in science, all right? as the Skeleto says in um, Nacho Libre. He says, we believe in science. I don't want to be baptized. We believe in science. So we have the scientific kind of knowledge on the one hand, and yet at the same time, how many of you have seen on the telly, how many psychics are on the telly? How many, how many of those guys are about crossing over and kind of like getting to the other side and we can get you in touch with your granny who's just died? So on the one hand, there's this kind of scientific world mindset and on the other hand, this is complete gullibility that the same people who say they just want scientific rationale for everything are gullible enough to believe anything that someone says who claims to be a psychic. Don't you find that amazing? We have these amazing contradictions in our society, and that is the kind of society that Philip goes to preach in in Samaria. I was just listening the other day with my boys to a program called Horrible Histories like history for kids, and it's amazingly funny. 
So they were just talking about how many gods the Romans had. And here are some gods for you that the Romans had. They had gods for everything. They had a god for cattle worms called Verminius. They had a god for cupboards called Penetis. They had a god for a goddess for door hinges called Cordia. I kid you not, they had all these gods for everything. There was also a goddess of the sewers called Gloakina. They had gods for everything. Absolutely everything. So when you went into battle, you had to offer a god, to, uh, a sacrifice to the god of war and the god of horses to protect your horses in the battle and the god of first starts so that you could have a good start to the battle. They had myriad, myriad gods that they had to offer sacrifices to. So I want to say, I think in this world in which we live, there are not really many genuine atheists. And if someone like Simon comes into the community claiming great authority, claiming contact with the spiritual world, people generally will listen. So we have this extraordinary skepticism on one hand and extraordinary gullibility on the other. And what, is, what does Philip do? Philip comes into this kind of context and he doesn't even... He doesn't preach anything of a gospel to do with the supernatural. What he does, he preaches faith in Christ. He calls for faith, not magic. And even though he's doing these amazing signs and wonders, he calls the people and he says, I want to tell you about Jesus. I want to tell you about the source of these wonders and signs. And and every occasion that took place, he uses the opportunity to preach about the Son of God. And verse 12 says, When they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom and about the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. The sense of the whole community is affected, both men and women, and he preached the good news of the kingdom. I want to say to you that, generally speaking, all religions are bad news. No matter how they're dressed up, religion is bad news. I want to say to you, in the church, religion is bad news. Don't think we're free of religion just because we come to church. Religion is bad news. Religion says this, you must live like this. You must follow these rules to please God. You must follow this philosophy. You must follow this aesthetic. In other words, if you pray five times a day, if you fast enough, if you get up early in the morning, you will please God by that aesthetic. You must follow this program. You must follow these rules. Or like in this, in this chapter, you must pay this money to this magician called Simon and then you will have power. My friends, there's a lot of money flowing in the church towards very anointed gurus who claim to have power. Let us not think that we are free from these things. Am I being naughty this morning? The good news of the gospel, I was just thinking, you know, Mourinho, what does he call himself? The special one. I'm the special one. I'm the anointed one. I am, I'm the guy. You pay me enough money, and I will get you to win the UEFA Cup. Whatever your... He is. He's, he's got an anointing, that guy. He does. This is the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is that it's a free message. Free message. It simply says that Jesus is king. It simply says, by his power, not your power, got nothing to do with you, by his power, he can overcome sin and death in your life. It's his power, it's a free message. My friends, that is good news. That is good news. 
He preaches the good news. Philip preaches the good news about the name of Jesus. What does Jesus mean? Joshua. Joshua means Savior. He preaches the good news of Christ the Savior. It's his character. It is the character. It is the nature of Jesus to save. That's who he is. He's a Savior. He's truly a Savior. And salvation comes to us when we put all of our trust, all of our faith in the name of Jesus. Nothing else but in the name of Jesus. We trust him to be who he truly is. He truly is a Savior. And when we trust him completely, we say, Jesus, who you are, your nature is to save. I want you to be that fully in my life. And I put all my eggs in that basket. I don't cling on to anything else except the name of Jesus. That's faith. So Philip calls for faith. Not by good works, not by payments to a magician, not by programs of study, not by doing the right thing, not by being a superhuman disciple. None of that. Getting it all right. You know why I think sometimes people like rules? It's because... If a wife is insecure that her husband is going to behave badly, what's the easiest thing to do? Say, I just want to tell you what the Bible says about being a husband. Let me tell you. A whole lot of rules. Follow those rules, our marriage is happy. Same way, a wife, a husband who's nervous about his wife, what he can do? He can put law on her. Just say, here are the rules. This is how we're going to behave in this house. Follow the rules and we'll be happy. Can you see what I'm saying? Religion can even come into our marriages. Who wants to live in a marriage like that? I don't. The only thing that can change your husband, wives, is your prayer. That releases the power of the Holy Spirit to change your husband. (laughs) The only thing that can change your wife, husband, is prayer. Anything else is manipulation. You want your husband and your wife to change, you get on your knees and you pray for them. Don't do anything else because if you do anything else, you will manipulate to get your way. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says manipulation is just like witchcraft. And what it's saying is you release a demonic power when you try and manipulate each other. It's not the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a bit strong, is it? No, it's the truth. (laughs) It is the truth. Helen has prayed for me much. You're not supposed to laugh so loudly, right? It's true. We must pray for each other. We promised when we got married that we would try and encourage each other into the fullness of God's calling for each other's lives. And God has taken us seriously. And so you pray for your wife. You pray for your husband. You hand them over to the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, those things they need to change in them, I trust that you will change them by the power of your Spirit. Because when I try and change them, all it does is release the negative thing into our marriage. That should be good news. Uh, You're looking at me like it's crazy. All you have to do is pray. That's good news. (laughs) Pray in love. That's all you've got to do is pray in love. Amen. Now we come to this uh, this thing. It says, uh, Philip said that when we have faith, we preach faith in Christ. What was the sign of faith in Christ? It was baptism. And it was, it, baptism is the visible sign that uh, we have come to Christ. And that it says the entire community was reached, whole families were reached. And there was this visible sign that they came to Christ, that they acknowledged their need of Him, and they were baptized. It's a visible expression of faith in Jesus. I want to just throw it out there this morning. 
there's anyone here who hasn't been baptized, I want to encourage you to be baptized as soon as you possibly can be. Because it's a visible expression of your faith in Jesus. And there's something that happens after you baptize that is a, a release of a deeper level of the Spirit in your life. I believe it with all my heart. I've seen people struggle for many, many years, and suddenly there's this, they go through the waters of baptism, and there's a deeper revelation that comes, and they start living free, and then the Holy Spirit, obviously we want the Holy Spirit to be poured out as well. We're going to talk about that in a short while. But here we come to the crux of what I want to say this morning. It's this amazing testimony here of true faith and false faith. Because if you read from verse 13, we're going to read about Simon a little bit further. We're going to read through to verse 24. It says, Simon himself, even Simon himself believed. The magician says he believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. So he not only believes, but he goes to this visible sign of repentance. And he he, uh, continues with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. The power that's upon Philip and these guys that are praying for people is amazing. And even the sorcerer, even the guy who can do all the magic tricks, he's amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, so they sent the apostles, to come down and pray for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, because they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands of the apostles, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, (laughs) May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart might be forgiven you. For I see that you are the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Gee, these apostles were such nice men, eh? So gentle and kind of just did things in a nice way. And he just goes straight to the jugular. Tells him you're an absolute hypocrite. And then it says, Simon answered, pray for me. Says the right thing again, even to the end. Pray for me that nothing of what you have said might come upon me. Well, first thing I want to say, this portion is quite unusual because uh, what we see here is false faith. I mean, verse, verse 13 is quite clear. It says, Simon believed and was baptized. But it comes, becomes almost immediately in evidence that his faith was not real. It was not genuine. I, I want to say this to you. It's the conviction of my heart, absolutely convinced of this, that the Bible does not try to encourage us to question whether we are saved or not. In fact, the Scripture does exactly the opposite. It tries to encourage us that when we are saved, There's assurance of salvation that comes, and we know once for all that we are saved. So how do we explain this portion? How do we understand this thing of Simon? Well, I want to just say to you this morning that you know or you do not know whether you trust the crucified and risen Christ as your only hope of salvation. You know in your knower. If you know that, you can be absolutely sure that you're saved. My question to you this morning is a very simple one. Do you know it or don't you? (laughs) All right? 
We can be assured of our salvation. So I want to say, the tone of Scripture is not there to get us to question whether we are saved or not. In fact, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. There's assurance that comes. There's assurance that comes by the Holy Spirit that we know that we're saved. But I'm convinced of this, from this portion, that there is such a thing as pretended faith. Pretended faith. Simon pretended to do the right thing. Why? Because he wanted the power without the cross. He was, his heart was not after Christ. His heart was not genuinely after gospel. He just wanted the power. And Philip gets duped at the beginning. Philip believes him. But when the apostles come and he says, can I pay money to get that power? Peter sees through it straight away and he says, you are wicked. You are wicked. And there's, there's no love for Christ in your heart, you, know, you can't have this power by money. It's a free gift that comes from God. Pretended faith. I believe this. Once saved, once saved, always saved. Yeah? But there's such a thing as pretended faith. And it's, it's, uh, there's another example of it, actually, in the parable of the sower. Because if you go to Luke chapter 8, verse 13, you'll read these words. It says, Talking about the parable of the sower, it says, and the, one on which the, uh, and the ones on the rock are those, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but they have no root, and the same word is used, they believe for a while, and at the time of testing they fall away. The same word, pretended faith. It's not the real thing. It's not the genuine thing. And so here we have this amazing example that Simon, who pretends to believe. Why? Because he had great influence, it says in verse 10. He didn't want to lose that influence. He was interested in the, the power that um, Philip had. The whole to- town was rejoicing. He didn't, want them, he didn't want them to no, no longer honor him. And in, in fact, in verse 13, it says, when he saw the signs and wonders, he was amazed. There was something in his heart that wanted the power without the cross. Simon is told bluntly and plainly he's a money hungry pretender. He doesn't have a changed heart. He's wicked, falsely motivated, the need of forgiveness and bondage to sin. And he goes out of the New Testament. The last time we hear of Simon, the sorcerer, is he's praying this pious prayer. He goes out of the scripture saying the right thing. He says, Lord, pray for me that nothing what you said might fall upon me. The truth is this, that in church history, there's a guy called Arrhenius. Arrhenius was a man who documented the first century church. And who do you think was at the forefront of Christian heresy in the first century as told by Arrhenius the historian? You want to guess who it is? Simon the sorcerer. He goes out of the New Testament saying, yes, pray for me, pray for me that this won't fall on me. He's a hypocrite in his heart. And he was one of the guys that spread heresy wherever he went in the first century. Amazing. True faith. It's not just getting the church to accept you on your terms. It's not going through the routine of water baptism in the hope that it might do you good. You know, well, I'll just try it and see if it works. Faith is knowing that Jesus is the Son of God and casting yourself completely upon Him in the hope of that He's your only hope for forgiveness. True faith. And the, the thing is that the Samaritans, their faith proves to be real. It says the fact that they haven't yet received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has led them to a point of repentance. 
But there's the sealing of the Spirit that comes when the, when the apostles lay their hands upon him, uh, on them, and they receive the Spirit, and there's that absolute sealing in their hearts. It's a conscious thing. In fact, when you read Acts 19, verse 2, Paul says, did you not receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we haven't received the Holy Spirit. We don't even know that there's a Holy Spirit. <laughs> Acts 19. So these people have been, some of the, the examples in the New Testament where people have been brought to salvation, but they don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. There's not been that tangible sealing of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Also, um, Galatians 3 verse 2. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by the work of law or by hearing, which comes by faith? So Paul reminds the Galatian church, he says, no, no, no. You received the Holy Spirit when the word of faith was preached to you. I believe that the empowering of the Holy Spirit needs to take place in every single one of our lives. Every single one of our lives. And the tone of the New Testament, again, is that that should happen as soon as possible. All right? There are some examples where it takes there some time delay. Jesus was in his 30s and was ministering, and then it says the Holy Spirit descended upon him as a dove, and there's the sealing of the Holy Spirit upon his life. And God says from heaven, you are my son in whom, I, whom I'm well pleased. There's a waiting of the disciples up in the upper room for the day of Pentecost. There's a sense of delay there where they're waiting, and then the Holy Spirit is poured down. But generally, when you read the book of Acts, people are saved, baptized, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them <laughs> quickly. I think that's what we all need. Huh? We all need the empowering of the Holy Spirit. If you are a part of this church, whether you're a saint, a children's worker, whatever you do, facilitating anything, surely what we need more than anything else is the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Andrew. Andrew needs the Holy Spirit. Anyone else need the Holy Spirit? I'll put my hand up. Anyone else? I'm not trying to manipulate this morning. I want to say, without the Holy Spirit, how can you live this Christian life? How can you? Without the Holy Spirit, it just is law. It is just following the rules. We cannot live without the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we try to live without the power of the Holy Spirit, we are just going to get into compulsion. We're just going to get into doing the right thing. And it's not the walk of the Spirit. And that's what God is saying. He wants us to walk by the Spirit. That should be good news to you if you have been living by the rules for the last 45 years of your life. No? I just want to use an image that I've used before, and then we're going to have some time of prayer and ministry. Acts chapter 2, it talks about the Holy Spirit coming upon them as tongues of fire. Remember? It says the tongues of fire were visible, and um, the fire comes. And I think that image is powerful. And I've said this before, I want to say it again. Fire, what is one of the characteristics of fire? Fire burns things. It burns things that are rotten. It burns things that are di have died and are, de are, are decaying. It pushes back darkness, but it, it, at the same time, it brings warmth into your home uh, when it's cold. And I want to say that I feel like in this new season, God wants to come again and let the Holy Spirit burn away everything that is dead, everything that is decaying, and refresh people and bring light into their life and bring warmth into their life again. And I want to say when you've had time of battle in your life, that you can get, it gets a little bit leaked out, the, the Holy Spirit. You think that's uh, sacrilegious to say that? I don't think it is at all. I think the battles of this life, the, the weariness of this life, the struggles of this life, can, the tangible sense of just God's presence with us, we can lose that, and then we can just be, be living from a place of dryness instead of a place of overflowing. 
It also brings comfort. It also brings uh, pleasure. Fire does. Warmth, joy, laughter, comfort when you're sitting around a fire with your mates. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. He wants to bring warmth, joy, comfort, laughter into our lives. Anyone want some joy and laughter? Are we, are we happy with how the status quo is right now? I just want to say, my friends, if you found me a little bit strong at the beginning of the meeting, my, my frustration is this, that I, I, I am by nature someone who likes to get things done. All right? I discovered this. At, we did this thing called the Strength Finder Test. So my weakness is that I can be too, like, let's go, let's go, let's go. All right? And I'm needing the Holy Spirit to, to lead me. But I think there are also those of us that are on the other extreme. So for those of us that are on the other extreme, you need people like me to say, let's go, let's go, let's go. I need those who are on the other side to say, and just let's wait on God for a while. That we need each other. Are you with me? We need each other. That we desperately need each other. And more than needing each other, we need the Holy Spirit. He's perfect in every way, and He knows what is right for each of us. The fire burns. Fire also spreads. It touches everything. It touches everything. When fire burns, if you don't put in fire breaks, it just leaps over huge portions of land and it can burn up everything in its path. It sets things ablaze. Well, I want to say that for me, that as I look at our church community here, I think we need some fire again. I do. Now, either it's going to come by me or anyone else trying to encourage us into that fire and say, come on, guys, we can do it, we can do it, we can do it. Come on, come on. You know what that's going to do? It's going to make everybody tired. might not take instantaneous tiredness. It might take six months or a year, but everyone's just going to get tired. But if the Holy Spirit comes and does it, if the Holy Spirit touches our hearts, if the Holy Spirit sets us on fire from the inside, there, wherever we're going to go, fire's going to be. I'd rather have that. Amen? Yes. They want to say, Lord, just come and set us on fire again. Just our hearts. And maybe you're saying to me, you're looking at me this morning saying, my heart is so cold. I don't even know what you're talking about. I'm not even sure if I want what you're talking about. Well, I want to say, that's fine. You come to the, come to the cross in a place of honesty and say, Lord, my heart is cold, but I need you. Then God can move. Or else we can just sit and be polite and pretend that we're all okay. <laughs> the truth is we're not all okay. Fire, thirdly, lights. Fire has a luminance. It has a glow. It's got a, a radiance. And uh, don't you love the story of Moses at the burning bush? The luminance of the bush. It draws him. It attracts him. And once, once he's there and he's in the presence of God, and there's this kind of physical manifestation of the presence. God can speak. And God speaks and draws. And He speaks to him of His destiny. He speaks to him of the eternal plans that He has. I want to say to you, if you feel like dry, if you feel like you don't know what the future holds for yourself, the best thing you can do is allow the, the presence of God, to, while you're in the presence of God, allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. And He will speak to you, whisper in your ear of what He has for you. And His plans are always good. They're always good. That's good news. Lastly, fire empowers. It empowers. It, it gets things mobilized. Um, the obvious example is the combustion engine, isn't it? A little fire in your motor can get you to go very fast in various directions. Well, the Holy Spirit wants to do the same for us. I feel like the church needs to be energized. 
again, not just this community, but the church worldwide needs to be energized. And like I've said before, either that comes by a whole lot of cheerleaders trying to G, G people up and say, come on, church, come on, church, come on, church. We can do this. We can do this. We can do this. Well, that's just going to be exhausting for the cheerleaders and exhausting for the church. Or we can say, Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, come and change us. I choose the latter. Spirit can make us passionate, liberated worshipers, powerful witnesses for Christ. He wants to mobilize us. He wants to energize us. It's by the Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. It's by the Spirit that we confess that Jesus is Lord. It's by the Spirit that He assures us of our relationship with Him, the relationship with the Father, the relationship with the Son. The Spirit gives us confidence that we can boldly enter the presence of God as His sons, and not the presence of God, we can boldly enter into um, our relationship with Him as sons boldly because of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. So, you know, if that's what God wants to do in the church, it's no wonder that the devil tries to rob us. It's no wonder that the, the devil tries to confuse people about the Holy Spirit. But it's so much part of the destiny that God has for us in terms of our future. How then do we receive the Spirit? I, I, I want to say that God wants to release His Spirit. I believe this morning He wants to do some stuff with us. I believe Jesus wants every single person to be free from fear. You don't live your life out of a place of fear. You don't live your life wondering bad things are going to happen. I want to say even if bad things happen, your, your future is safe and secure because of a sovereign God who loves you, because you're His son. Because you're his daughter. And I believe he wants to empower us, impart power to us and authority to us to live overcoming lives that we can be bold proclaimers of the gospel, just like the, 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 the people in the book of Acts. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 verse 5 says, You are enriched in every way, in all speech, all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed amongst you, and you do not lack in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have all that we need. How many of you feel like this morning that you are living at the fullness of what God has for you in every area of your life? No one. Well, I don't feel like that either. So, we need more of the Holy Spirit to move us further into the plan, further into the purposes of God. How many of you have unsaved people in your, in your household? Would you like them to be saved? How many of you people have friends and family still suffering from sickness? Me. There's loads of us. Guys, we can do nothing in our own strength. All we can do is pray. And he who is faithful, he is the author of all these things, is faithful to answer our prayers. That's all I'm trying to say to you this morning. So how do we, uh, I, just, I love this quote of Spurgeon. I don't know if I've used it here before. Only out of a full church will the world receive salvation, never, never out of an empty one. The first thing we want as a church is to be full of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Well, Peter says, and if you want to look at Acts chapter 2, when Peter's praying uh, before the day of Pentecost, it's a simple thing that happens. There's a confession of sin. There's a yielding to God. 
There's a coming to Jesus. We don't come to the person who's praying. I want to tell you, my friends, there's no, you don't need any guru. Okay? We don't need any anointed one. We don't need anyone in this room who has some kind of special power. All we need is Jesus. When we pray for each other, we come to Christ. He's the author of the gift. We come to Jesus, and he pours himself out by the Holy Spirit. There's no guru, no teacher, just Jesus. That's good news. The Buddhists say you need a guru, that you need a teacher. What do you think all the, the other religions teach is that you need special people to, to lead you into knowledge. No, no, we have one who's gone before us. His name is Jesus. He is the author and the finisher of every good thing, and all we need is him. Come to Jesus, and then simply ask for the Holy Spirit. John 7, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Simply ask Jesus for himself. We say, by your spirit, come now and touch us. Amen?